0: Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 111 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah, and joining me, as always, is... Wait for it, is... (laughs) (laughs)
1: This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an Associate Professor of Dermatology and Dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful sunny Lubbock, Texas.
0: Our mission, of course, is to come to you every two weeks with discussions of some of the latest research in the world of clinical dermatology. And to help us out, we also have the pimping bell. Say hello, pimping bell. The pimping bell exists to highlight especially question-worthy content. For example, if you're a resident or somebody learning dermatology, or even just somebody who wants to know a little pearl. That's the time to especially pay attention. Though, Of course, you always want to pay attention to us because we're so awesome. Speaking of (laughs) us being awesome, if you want to spend more time with awesome people, you can join the University of Utah Dermatology Echo Outreach CME program. It's free. You can present some of your cases. You can hear some of our faculty give lectures. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's the second Friday of every month over the lunch hour generally. Also, if you want to hang out with me in person in Idaho, in September, we have a couple meetings, one specifically for dermatologists, one targeted toward primary care providers. Links will be in the show notes for that as well. And speaking of meetings, Michelle and I were both recently at a couple really cool meetings. I went to the Society for Pediatric Dermatology annual meeting in Asheville, North Carolina. Michelle, where did you go?
1: I was at the World Congress of Dermatology in Singapore, Singapore.
0: Well, they call Asheville the Singapore of the United States, so I'm pretty sure we're equal <laughs> in terms of coolness of our travel. I want to talk to you guys about highlights from the SPD meeting and then Michelle can hit some of the highlights from the World Congress. Asheville was a cool city to hang out in and it was a great meeting. A special shout out to Amy Theos, one of the coordinators who's going to join us here at the University of Utah in a couple of months. We're looking forward to you joining us, Amy. Still room for plenty more people by the way so at the spd here are some things that i learned i learned about a condition called juvenile gangrenous vasculitis of the scrotum nice. sounds bad and it's pretty unpleasant it might be the male version of lipschitz ulcers and often follows viral tonsillitis or pharyngitis it's rapidly progressive patients are usually pretty well though except that it's very painful. It's important to rule out Fournier's gangrene. A biopsy shows some vasculitis, but is largely nonspecific. You can get a CT or ultrasound to rule out free air to make sure this isn't something more concerning. Otherwise, this resolves in a few weeks. You can consider topical or oral steroids for comfort. We talked a bit about pediatric nails. So for nail psoriasis, which is a tough thing to treat, they say consider treating with clobetasol and calcipotrine. If no improvement after three months, you can move on to a systemic like a biologic. And again, three months is about how long you should give everything before you give up and move on to something else. Subungual exostosis is a thing. It's usually a thing around the great toenail and can be from trauma months prior. It's an outgrowth of the bone. So the nail is fine. So if you look at it real close up, like on edge, you'll see that the nail just has a normal nice curvature and looks fine. But there's this growth underneath. The growth doesn't connect to the nail. Get an X-ray to prove the diagnosis. Also, in terms of nails, ingrowing nails, onychocryptosis usually inflamed, but not usually infected. So just use topical steroids. They don't usually need antibiotics. We also had an ophthalmologist talk to us about meibomian glands. These are sebaceous glands in the eyes. They're filled with lipid. And if they are having problems, the first thing is to try what's called eyelid hygiene. I've heard ophthalmologists talk about eyelid hygiene before. I didn't quite know what it meant. But she says, Scrub the eyelashes with warm washcloths and baby shampoo, or perhaps a product called Clearadex, C-L-I-R-A-D-E-X, hashtag not sponsored. Just sort of wash the eyelashes and behind the eyelashes and consider a tea tree oil product if you suspect Demodex. Omega-3 fatty acids by mouth can help with some of this dry eye stuff. We've talked about that before in terms of isotretinoin-induced dry eyes. And then warm compresses is what they recommended, though, in practice, I mean... Do warm compresses ever really work? Uh, I think I've... that they have some some benefit. Busy hands are happy hands. Crusty <laughs> collarettes at the bases of the eyelashes specifically, as opposed to diffuse crusty colorettes, is a sign of demodicosis. Mm-hmm. In terms of styes or what we might call Hordiola, antibiotics, warm compresses, steroid drops. Also, in terms of eyelids, let's say you biopsy an upper eyelid and there's like a little wound there and you're worried about a scar. Well, they suggest massage and sort of pulling at the upper eyelid after a biopsy can prevent adhesive scarring. So you might recommend that to your patients. Lish nodules. Don't bother looking for them until age five or more. Our ophthalmology colleague says, maybe you can see these lish nodules in clinic if you turn off the lights, distract the patient with an electronic device, and shine your light on the patient from the side. You also might recall that way back in episode 29, we said you can sometimes find lish nodules with your dermatoscope, but don't bother Mm -hmm. looking unless the patient is age 5 or over. If you're trying to treat atopic dermatitis or vitiligo or something else with this newly approved ruxolitinib cream, make sure to keep it under 20% body surface area or you risk too much systemic absorption perhaps. And speaking of jack inhibitors, we've talked about those before. You might remember back in episode 79, we had a fairly lengthy discussion about the potential adverse effects of jack inhibitors. This particular expert likes to tell the following to her patients. Short-term risks in jack inhibitors include URI, about 17% of people, acne, 4%, herpes, 4%, and what I had not appreciated before, weight gain, and about 2%, so remember, Steve Feldman and Framing, ninety-eight percent chance you won't get weight gain,
1: but <laughs> apparently
0: it's more of a uh, more prevalent than I thought. And then the long-term risks, especially for our patients, are harder to figure out with the current data. Speaking of adverse effects. These jack inhibitors can potentially increase thromboembolic risk. Again, we discussed that a bit in episode 79. So be careful if you're treating women and girls because they might be on OCPs, which can also increase thromboembolic risk. You talked a little bit about that last time when we discussed menopause and hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. And jack inhibitors, whether or not they're teratogenic is kind of unknown at this point. So probably err on the side of caution. For live vaccines, if you're treating somebody with a jack inhibitor, hold the jack inhibitor a week before they get the vaccine and continue holding it for four weeks after. So that's five weeks with no medicine, but they can get their live vaccines. And then baricitinib, that pill can be split and crushed if you want to treat, you know, a little kid potentially, and it's stable in water for four hours, apparently couple other jack inhibitors, nib, which we'll discuss a little bit later today, listeners, and nib <laughs> cannot be crushed or split. If you're trying to treat somebody with Tofacitinib, hey, it comes as a liquid. We also had a radiologist come and talk to us. When should you order contrast, for example? Well, she says, for the first-time evaluation of any vascular malformation or neurocutaneous syndrome, except perhaps neurocutaneous melanosis, that's kind of unclear. If you suspect the patient has a neoplasm or an infection, then order contrast. And contrasted MRIs are always ordered with and without contrast. So then when should you not order contrast? If you're following an already diagnosed vascular anomaly, if you're doing surveillance for optic gliomas in NF1 or giant cell astrocytomas in tuberous sclerosis, and for first-time evaluation of potential neurocutaneous melanosis, again, according to her. There is a consensus on methotrexate for inflammatory skin disease in children. This was an article published in 2022 with uh, chief authors, Brandling. They say the consensus is the max dose is one milligram per kilogram, which is like a lot, up to 25 milligrams. You get there pretty quick if you're treating somebody with one mg per gig. Parental administration so injection may increase efficacy if you can convince the kids to get a shot every week live virus vaccine boosters are safe but we don't know about primary vaccinations with live vaccines and it's okay to use trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole NSAIDs and aspirin despite what you might read on the internet do avoid alcohol especially if you're eight years old folic (laughs) acid supplementation is one milligram per day regardless of weight And then she says, temporarily discontinue methotrexate if liver enzymes are three times the upper limit of normal for two consecutive months. So eh, that's fairly liberal. Or white blood cell count drops to less than 3,000. ANC drops to less than 1,000. Platelets drop to less than 100. She recommends getting labs. Well, it's not just she. This consensus is to get labs after one month and then every three to four months. Don't worry about a test dose. I think that's kind of been debunked. We talked about that in a very early episode here. Remember that it's like teratogenic and don't bother tracking cumulative dose. Body surface area. We talked about this before in terms of the palm being one half percent of the BSA in adults and more like closer to one percent in kids. Another convenient rule is the rule of nine, since we talked about before. And then Larry Eichenfield. Hi, Larry. Talked about what he called the 10, 20, 30, 40 rule for BSA. So the head is 20 is 10 percent the upper extremities together are 20%. The trunk with the butt is 30% and the lower extremities are 40%. 10, 20, 30, 40. And then for babies, it's a little bit different. So you move 10% from the lower extremities to the head. So it's more like the 20, 20, 30, 30 rule, I guess. Um, interesting basic science stuff. In female organisms, Michelle, I presume you know this as a female organism yourself. <laughs> one X chromosome gets shut down early in development. It's called lionization. And that apparently is due to the effects of a piece of RNA called Xist. Capital X, little I-S-T, Xist. And then this shutdown of this chromosome has to be maintained throughout life and exist has a lot of genes in it that have been associated with autoimmunity like roe and law so this potentially could explain why female organisms are at increased risk of autoimmunity compared to males maybe this exist rna can leak out of cells thus generating autoimmunity Hmm. a few genodermatosis updates plaque syndrome is a new thing p-l-a-c-k peeling skin, leukonychia, one of my many nicknames, acryl keratosis, chylitis, and knuckle pads. It's caused a mutation in the gene that encodes for calpastatin. The gene is called C-A-S-T or CAST. Babies and toddlers with unexplained nail loss consider a factitious disease or Munchausen by proxy. There is a haunting case of a patient's mother, basically, who is just ripping off her baby's nails. Oh, my God. Sort of on the DL. And I don't want to take up too much time. So one last thing. What's the best thing? Oh, those of you out there who like podcasts. PEDRA, the uh, Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance, has a podcast. Specifically, they call it a podcast channel. So if you like dermatology podcasts, and I bet you do, if you want to listen to some more, there's one out there for you.
1: All right. So the World Congress of Dermatology in Singapore, Singapore, was a gigantic meeting, as are all of the world congresses. They only happen every four years. And this was actually the 25th World Congress of Dermatology. So I guess we dermatologists have been at this for 100 years now, um, kind of trying to educate each other all around the world. Good the, for us. And, I mean, you know, and I was very proud.
0: Why is it Singapore, Singapore? Is that like New York, New York?
1: Exactly. It's the capital and it's the name of the city and the name of the like place, you know. Pretty cool. So, um, it was. It's in. It's. I think it's um, part of Malaysia, which I had a very poor geographic understanding of before. But it is an absolutely lovely country. Um, people were very kind and welcoming there. The city itself was absolutely beautiful and so clean. Like they have a lot of rules um, in Singapore. You can't actually bring chewing gum into the country. You can get heavily fined if not, potentially have some other consequences for bringing gum or other things into the country that are prohibited there. But the um, space around the conference center was absolutely gorgeous. It was a nice time of year there. Actually, it was pretty temperate. It was warm, of course, but not completely uncomfortable. It was a really beautiful city. And the Congress itself was such a kind of beautiful coming together of dermatologists from around the world. The theme for the World Congress was Dermatology Beyond Borders, Science, Care, and Communities. And they were um, many. There were many sessions that were focused on equity and accessibility and provision of care to underserved populations. I was um, impressed with some of the presentations of care for patients who are in less well-served parts of the world that have somewhat tropical and neglected diseases like severe Leishmaniasis, patients that have lymphatic filariasis, and other um, inflammatory and infectious conditions that are undertreated. The Skin of Color Society actually had its first ever scientific session at the World Congress of Dermatology, and it was very successful. Um, Somebody that I got the opportunity to meet when he was just very much in the first part of his career and who's just really, Grown as a leader was um, Dr. Andrew Alexis, who's the president of the Skin of Color Society. And along with the co-chairs of their session, Dr. Jeanette O'Kay and um, Victoria Barbosa put together a beautiful session. Um, Dr. Alexis covered inflammatory disorders and skin of color and the attendant pigmentary alteration. Um, Dr. Cheryl Burgess went over cultural beauty around the world, and that's something that we've talked about in Dermosphere before. Um, that there are different cultural beauty standards, and those vary by um, region. They can vary by uh, tradition, by um, like cultural preference, and that those things are very meaningful to patients, and you know have a place in the discussion of aesthetic treatment and even medical treatment. Um, Dr. Michelle Rodriguez discover, discussed facial pigmentation in patients of color. Dr. Akana Singal went over the unique presentations of cutaneous tuberculosis infections, and Dr. Nikora Dolova went over like planopilaris findings. Um, so I thought there was a really wonderful presence for um, focus on pigmentary disorders throughout the World Congress and there were some very um, well-put-together sessions talking about the use of our new therapeutics for treating pigmentary disorders like vitiligo and their attendant autoimmune conditions, including alopecia areata and certain types of dermatitis. Um, I I was very grateful to have been invited to speak by Dr. Steve Tiering, and we were focusing on updates in HIV um, and dermatology. And that's a topic that's very important to me. I was, I may sound a little bit hoarse today. I was at the free clinic last night until almost 10 o'clock, helping take care of some of the patients in our, um, in our area. And there are, you know, still patients who have, um, undiagnosed HIV that will present in free clinic settings. We had one, um, not last night, but in the recent past that presented with sort of thunderclap onset, um, secondary syphilis, and some other comorbidities. And, you know, our patients just need access to care and proper treatment. So the different sessions that were presented in the update to HIV, um, I was presenting with Dr. Michael Skerlov, who presented on HPV and HIV-infected patients, discussed the potential utilization for vaccination in these patients, and of course, the participation of HPV in carcinogenesis, which um, kind of tied in a little bit to the topic I was speaking on, which was immune checkpoint inhibitors in HIV. And it's actually kind of fascinating when um, the studies for the immune checkpoint inhibitors were first designed as medicines that that affect the immune system, it's understandable that the initial study authors would exclude patients that had um, conditions that affected immune status. So HIV-positive patients or patients living with HIV were pretty much excluded from most of the initial clinical trials for the checkpoint inhibitors. Subsequent trials have been able to demonstrate safety and efficacy of these medications in treating patients who have HIV, um, so long as it's under good control. And it's an important thing to be aware of because squamous cell carcinoma and other skin cancers can actually contribute significantly to morbidity in patients living with HIV. So having access to proper treatment, especially for advanced disease, is important. But what's even more exciting about it is that the PD-1 inhibitors and other immune checkpoint inhibitors may help us solve the problem that has made vaccination or therapy for HIV very difficult in the past, which is viral latency. So the ways that viruses are able to affect our bodies for our whole lives is if they can go into a latent stage, which allows them to hide from our immune system. The immune checkpoint inhibitors can actually reverse latency in those cells that are sort of like little zombie infected cells hiding in our body waiting to, you know, reactivate and spread virus. And when you have latency reversal, it raises the possibility for eventual therapeutic vaccination, which is very exciting because that's a concept that people have been pondering and discussing and doing research on since HIV was discovered. Uh, But the problem of latency has always been an issue. And so the possibility to have therapeutic vaccination is something that I think can give a lot of people hope. And one of the other things that um, I talked about in my session was uh, cryptococcus and its interaction with the immune system, particularly in HIV-positive patients. And what's very interesting about cryptococcal infection is it activates sort of a maladaptive TH2 response. And that actually ends up doing a lot of the damage even in the central nervous system. So there are some investigations underway looking at IL-4 blockade in the therapy of patients who have cryptococcal infection to help prevent some of the sequelae of meningoencephalitis with that pathogen. So I thought that was fascinating. Um, Dr. Angela Moore spoke on changing patterns and treatments of STIs in HIV-infected patients and the sort of dual confounding issues of co-infection and rising resistance. And so paying close attention to our therapeutic regimens and doing appropriate broad testing for anyone who has any kind of immune compromise for STIs I think is very important. And then um, Dr. Ishwar Gilada finished out the session with a fantastic discussion on tuberculosis and leprosy in HIV-positive patients and how to both properly capture the data around these patients, how to identify patients that have resistant variants of the tuberculosis and how to properly treat them. So I really enjoyed all of those sessions. Um, I think that there were some other wonderful sessions that went over um, treatment of kind of neglected diseases. One of the interesting ones to me was looking at um, the use of Janus kinase inhibitors in immunobullous diseases. So there have started to be some case reports of use of Janus kinase inhibitors for the treatment of bullous pemphigoid and other immunobullous diseases. And they're showing some very promising results. So uh, there were also some head-to-head studies looking at rituximab versus omalizumab in patients with refractory bolus pemphigoid, patients with um, dexamethasone pulse therapy versus rituximab. And what's, what's very interesting is the continued sort of demonstration proof of concept that these autoimmune bolus diseases, the more they're allowed to sort of flare and rage and things like that, the more the immunity can kind of harden and the more difficult they can be to treat. So I think that there is a very good impetus for early treatment of these conditions to help improve the quality of life for patients that are affected with immunobolus disease. There were some good discussions about the um, problem of genitourinary fistula in women in parts of the world where their um, obstetric care might not be as robust, and uh, efforts to sort of help improve the sort of sequelae and morbidity that can be associated with that. And then uh, I'll put in a teaser for an upcoming episode of Dermosphere. So there's also been um, new staging and criteria around um, Caesarea syndrome and mycosis fungoides, which was originally published in Blood, which is a journal that a lot of hematopathologists read, but not a lot of dermatopathologists and not a lot of dermatologists read. But a lot of
0: vampires read.
1: But uh, so many vampires. I mean, Blood is the favorite magazine of Bella Lugosi. That sparkly guy from Twilight. I'm I'm pretty sure Nosferatu was, you know, on the cover at some point. Um, But the uh, update on mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome. We're going to have a expert guest on to discuss, and I think he will do a fabulous job. So.
0: Well, it sounds like both of our meetings had a lot of discussion about JAK inhibitors and a little bit about alopecia areata, and some of our listeners may have heard that a new JAK inhibitor was just approved for alopecia areata, so I would like to talk to you guys about the trials that got it approved. So this is out of The Lancet, and the title is Efficacy and Safety of Ritlicitinib in Adults and Adolescents with Alopecia Areata, a Randomized Double Blind Multicenter Phase 2B3 Trial. Authors include Brett King and Rodney Sinclair and Robert Walk and Natasha Messenkovska. Woo! How's it going, Natasha? <laughs> so, Ritlacitinib, recently approved by the FDA for alopecia areata in patients age 12 plus based on this trial, which of course was funded by the pharmaceutical company. So, the short story is that this medicine seems safe and 20 to 50% of patients have significant improvement on it. That's the short story. The following is the long story. So Ritlacitinib, a JAK inhibitor, specific for JAK3. It also inhibits the TEC family of kinases, which are also involved in immune activation. So one of the speakers at the SPD meeting says that these JAK receptors tend to dimerize with each other. So it's really hard for them to be truly specific, because even if they inhibit just JAK3, that JAK3 could be combined with JAK1 or JAK2 or TYK, and it's still rather nonspecific. This study had about 700 patients, about two-thirds of them were white and a third were Asian, with bad alopecia areata, half of them with alopecia totalis or universalis, though none of the patients with current hair loss of over 10 years duration. And they were randomized, of course, to placebo or to several different dosing regimens with ritlicitnib. It was basically 30 or 50 milligrams daily with or without a loading dose of 200 milligrams daily for the first month. And all of this lasted for 24 weeks. Then there was an open-label extension to week 48 when everybody got the drug. So their endpoint was a SALT score, S-A-L-T, which we've discussed before. It stands for Severity of Alopecia Tool. And basically, it's the percentage of hair loss that people have. So the percentage of hair on the scalp that is missing. And a SALT score of 20 or less has been shown in the past to be a meaningful improvement for patients. So that's what they were shooting for. A SALT score of 20 or less at week 24 was achieved by 30% of patients in the highest dose of Ritlacitinib versus 2% in placebo. A SALT score of 10 or less was achieved by 20% of people in this group. About 50% of patients rated their disease as moderately or greatly improved, and improvements continued until week 48 when the study stopped, so perhaps they would continue after that as well. If you had alopecia totalis or universalis and you wanted a salt score of 20 or less, good luck. Only 10% of you got there. But versus 0% with placebo, 10% is better than nothing. But that's consistent with known facts about alopecia areata. Totalis and universalis are just really hard to get the hair to come back. This medicine looks quite safe. Most adverse effects were mild or moderate. In the treatment group, more common adverse effects compared to placebo included URIs nasopharyngitis. Hey, Michelle, what's the difference between nasopharyngitis and URIs?
1: That's an interesting question. Nasopharyngitis could be caused by anything that causes inflammation of the um, nasopharynx. So you can get nasopharyngitis from allergies. You can get it from irritant inhalants. Um, People get it when there's wildfire smoke and stuff like that so nasopharyngitis is just the name of the symptom um upper respiratory infections is more pointing i think to etiology but they overlap significantly in symptom
0: yeah so perhaps some of this nasopharyngitis was also URIs maybe it's tough to tease those apart also UTIs and zoster there were eight total episodes of zoster in this trial and none were severe remember to vaccinate your patients before putting them on one of these as per episode 86 That's adults anyway. There was one instance of a pulmonary embolus, and it was in the treatment group. Who knows if it was related or not. And there were two malignancies. Again, see episode 79 for a more in-depth discussion of adverse effects in JAK inhibitors. Both of these malignancies were patients on treatment. They were both breast cancer and women in their 40s or 50s. Uh, The on-site investigators thought one of these was related to the study drug and the other was not, but that's scary. Of course, we don't want to give people cancer, but take a listen to some of our uh, previous episodes. The risk is really quite low. There were a few serious infectious events potentially related to the drug, including one patient who who had both empyema, which is like pustule stuff in the lungs, and sepsis. Acne was not increased, though there was a bump in, quote, folliculitis. Patients had mild, generally transient, and clinically insignificant changes in lab values, including creatine kinase, white blood cell parameters, hemoglobin, and platelets, as well as cholesterol, HDL, and LDL. I think the lab monitoring for these drugs is uh, evolving. The investigators also performed audiology evaluations on all of their patients, apparently due to some unpublished data in, quote, chronic toxicology studies in dogs that showed reversible axonal neuropathy
1: Hmm.
0: hear about this anywhere before michelle hmm people on the twitters aren't being like don't take jack inhibitors they cause hearing loss
1: i haven't seen that yet i've seen a lot of people chit-chatting about um certain nitrous nitrous oxide releasing medications causing hearing loss but
0: well it's the first had ever heard of it and these investigators did find six patients who had audiology abnormalities in the testing, but the patients didn't bring it up. So presumably patients didn't notice it. It was mild, I guess. And this was described as sensory neural hearing loss that was emphasized as not central. So it's not the brain, I guess that's the nerves. Tough to say Mm -hmm. if that's going to become an issue or not. My feeling is probably not. For more in-depth discussion of JAK inhibitors, again, including the black box warning, episode 79 is your go-to episode for that. A few other tidbits, the pathophysiology of alopecia areata, still hard to say what's going on exactly, but it may involve loss of immune privilege by the hair follicle. So remember, the hair follicle is supposed to be an immune-privileged site, meaning normally immune cells are not allowed in. But Mm -hmm. if there's a breakdown in that barrier, then perhaps the immune cells can get back get in there, and since they're finding antigens they don't normally see, they can get excited. And some basic science research suggests that Ritlacitinib may restore this immune privilege. I wonder if it gets restored temporarily, probably, or more permanently, which would be cool, so perhaps this drug could be discontinued, though it seems like based on current data, most patients who discontinue whatever treatment they're on for alopecia areata tends to come back. Overall, I would say this Ritlacitinib stuff is probably comparable to Baricitinib, which was the first drug approved for alopecia areata, which we discussed in episode 87, but this is approved for age 12 plus. Baricitinib is currently approved for age 18 plus. I think it's approved at the 50 milligrams daily dose without this 200 milligrams daily loading dose for the first month, though that is what got the best results in the trial. And of course, whether or not the cost justifies the use of these medications is another discussion. Baricitinib costs $5,500 a month. This Ritlicitinib stuff, the brand name is Litfulo, and it's about $4,000 a month, which is still a lot. But, you know, if we're anchored on $5,500, I guess $4,000 seems better. But honestly, they're both just way too expensive. (laughs)
1: It is, it is challenging accessing some of these medications, and, you know, it is wonderful that we have more indications that we can treat with targeted biologics. The um, finiteness of financial resources to treat patients is something that I think we need to be cognizant of. Um, for the patients that have severe disease, these treatments can, of course, be quite life-changing. You know, I think we can all think of a patient we've treated that's had alopecia totalis that's... Recovered and the change in their quality of life. But you're absolutely right. There are some ethical and um, global considerations that we have to put forward as well when we're choosing our therapies. But I'm excited about it.
0: Yeah, it's nice to have something else, especially something approved in the pediatric range. So that's the story with nib. And I feel after reading this trial, I will feel empowered to use it if I think it's appropriate.
1: So, Luke, what were you doing in 2011?
0: 2011, I was in medical school having a great time in the city of Pittsburgh. Really good burgers and pizza.
1: That's awesome. I just finished my dermatopathology fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'd started as an assistant professor at St. Louis University. Well, in 2011, Peter Grayson at the Undiagnosed Disease Division at NIH, who focused on vasculitis and inflammatory conditions in his group, were trying to solve the puzzle of this gentleman in his late 50s who had been previously healthy and then started to present with progressively accelerating worsening of his health. So first he developed fevers. He had face swelling. He had orchitis, skin nodules, DVTs, and perichondritis. So he actually had swelling of the cartilage of his ear. Um, he was only able to be controlled at that point with prednisone. 25 milligrams a day of prednisone, if you dropped him even down to 20, he would get very sick. And so the team at the NIH kind of doctor housed to this and sort of intentionally decreased his prednisone while he was under close observation so that they could figure out what his body was doing. And when they dropped it down from 25 to 20 milligrams a day, he got vasculitis, his CRP went up, and skin biopsy showed medium vessel vasculitis that was diagnosed as atypical polyarteritis nodosa. Um, Then he also had periorbital inflammation that developed. He kind of bounced around with this chronic inflammatory milieu between 2013 and 2017. He was trialed on Anakinra, which actually kind of set the world on fire a little bit for him and and caused a worsening of the vasculitic lesions. And then he started to experience progressive bone marrow failure, which was signified by anemia and then thrombocytopenia. The anemia was macrocytic. And continued to get worse. So finally, they did a bone marrow biopsy and they saw that he had hypercellular marrow that had myeloid predominance and negative genomic studies for myelodysplastic syndrome. So they were kind of at a loss as to what to do for this patient. He continued to deteriorate with worsening fevers. He got pulmonary infiltrates. He got disseminated mycobacterial infection, worsening of his anemia and his thrombocytopenia, requiring frequent blood and platelet transfusions and ongoing inflammatory conditions in multiple hospitals. And um, this patient was being monitored along with a couple other patients that started to show very similar symptoms. Um, Older gentlemen, who had been previously healthy that developed this sort of recalcitrant macrocytic anemia, then thrombocytopenia, then progressive bone marrow failure. So they started to try to solve the puzzle of what was wrong with these gentlemen, what was going on. And they specifically started to look at ubiquinone because it was a pathway that had been identified as problematic in a lot of chronic nebulous inflammatory diseases. And so what they were able to find was When they looked at that UBA1 gene in these men from their peripheral circulating blood, there were two peaks in it, which would indicate heterozygosity. But there's a fly in the ointment there. The um, UBA1 gene is on the X chromosome. So why would a man have heterozygosity of an X chromosome-carried gene? Why,
0: Indeed.
1: So to try to figure that out, they looked at the patient's fibroblasts. The fibroblasts had only one peak. So this was a restricted genetic mutation of the X chromosome that had been acquired in adulthood. And what was really kind of interesting about that was then they started to look at the marrow. And they found that the mutation was there in all of the precursor cells um, for the bone marrow, but it became lineage restricted to the myeloid lineage only. And was circulating in the neutrophils and monocytes. Um, in a sort of preferential fashion, actually. So most of the patients circulating neutrophils and monocytes had this mutation. The T and B cells did not have that mutation at all. And the patient's non-blood tissue didn't have the mutation. So they started to try to figure out what was going, around or going on around this UBA1 mutation and this severe adult-onset auto-inflammatory disease. They started to compare the um, bone marrow aspirates And what they started to discover was the syndrome that we now know as Vexus. So that little pre-story was to set the stage, if you will, for a discussion on um, the estimated prevalence and clinical manifestations of UBA1 variants associated with VEXIS syndrome in a clinical population. This is out of the JAMA as an original investigation by authors David Beck and Douglas Stewart. VEXIS stands for vacuoles, which is what they see on the myeloid cells on bone marrow aspirate that helps them to identify this syndrome. E1 ubiquitin activating enzyme. X-linked auto-inflammatory somatic syndrome. So that is what VEXIS stands for. VEXUS is hot right now, so hot, um, because, go ahead.
0: I was just going to agree with you, so hot right now. <laughs> also, we first discussed it in episode 50, so it's been a little hot for a while.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because it's a genetic syndrome that's non-familial because these genetic mutations arise postnatally um, and are also restricted to a certain even lineage of bone marrow cells. So it, it's very interesting. And also I think important to be aware of because many of us that do hospital consult type medicine have run into a patient with a nebulously deteriorating inflammatory course. Um, there's lots of different you know, inflammatory syndromes that people are starting to understand a lot better. The um, Vexus syndrome is one good example. Um, the malignant lymphohistia is another example. There are multiple syndromes where patients' immune systems sort of get gradually and progressively more and more on fire until it kind of takes the patient out. So VEXUS syndrome um, presents typically with rheumatologic and hematologic features that are caused by mutations in UBA1. They wanted to look in this study at the prevalence of pathogenic variants of UBA1 and associated clinical manifestations in an unselected population using a genomic assessment approach. And they can do that because they are Nordic. So (laughs) they're using a Nordic database that's quite comprehensive. I'm so, I apologize. My other study is Nordic. This one, they're not Nordic. They're from Geisinger. My apologies. Um, But they looked at patients in the Geisinger database, which had 163,000 patients plus, and they looked at their clinical phenotypes as well as genetic data. They were able to find out of that patient population, 11 patients um, that had a pathogenic variant in the uba one gene. And 100% of them had clinical manifestations that were consistent with Vexus syndrome. Nine of the patients that they identified in this registry were male and two were female. Five out of the 11 didn't meet the actual criteria for rheumatologic or hematologic diagnoses previously associated with Vexus syndrome. And we'll talk about those in a second. But all individuals had anemia, which is a hallmark of this disease. And the anemia tends to be macrocytic. So you tend to have macrocytic anemia. Thrombocytopenia is also quite common. Uh, That was present in 10 out of 11 of these patients. And in all of those patients, they were able to find a pathogenic variant of the UBA1 gene. There were um, a couple of different variants that were present in this patient cohort. But what was kind of interesting is all of the people that they looked at had some clue toward autoimmune abnormality when they presented with this genetic aberration. So they gave further support to the concept that the UBA1 variants are helping to cause this disease. The prevalence of the condition was kind of worked out to be um, dependent, dependent upon gender, which completely makes sense since this is an X-linked disorder. For the general population, like in total, the estimated prevalence for VEXIS was 1 in 13,591. And for, compra- for comparability, if you're thinking about like Haley-Haley disease, that's in 1 in 50,000 people. So 1 in 13,000 people for VEXUS to potentially carry this um, pathogenic mutation is a lot, actually. That's a that's a fair, fair minority of people to be aware of. Um, it's a more frequent problem for gentlemen because of the single X chromosome that gentlemen have. So for gentlemen patients over the age of 50, the prevalence that they found by calculation in this study was 1 in 4269 for men and 1 in 26000 for women because women have the other x chromosome to potentially help kind of balance things out a little bit. I thought of course, that work-
0: this is central pennsylvania so this is a, you know, caucasian population that generalizability is possibly questionable but One in 4,000 guys older than 50, especially if they're a Caucasian guy from central Pennsylvania, it's like not that (laughs) uncommon. So especially if they have a hematologic or rheumatologic disease that sort of doesn't quite fit the picture, definitely think about something like this.
1: Mm -hmm. The rheumatologic diseases that have been reported with Vexus syndrome are many and vary from polyarteritis nodosa to relapsing polychondritis, giant cell arteritis, SWEET syndrome, with hematologic abnormalities that can include myelodysplastic syndrome, macrocytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and dermatologic manifestations that are usually related to vasculitis. There is another UBA1 variant that is X-linked. and can result in spinal muscular atrophy. None of the patients in this study with this pathologic variant had any symptoms of spinal muscular atrophy. So these appear to be distinct conditions. And I think that there's a lot of research that's interesting going on in this area. I don't want to spend too much more time on this. I do want to point out the key points of vexis syndrome. It does not have an ICD-10 code, importantly. So capturing data around this can be challenging because many of the database searches are not going to be able to capture it since there's not a way to encode it, and that's not any shade for the ICD-10 people. This is a recently discovered entity. But usually there are concomitant clinical features in two different organ systems, um, rheumatologic, hematologic, dermatologic, or pulmonary, and that has to do with inappropriately activated um, autoimmunity. So I thought that that was very interesting that they were able to predict patients having these um, inflammatory syndromes and symptoms based off of just a blind genetic analysis. And I think that there are going to be opportunities for therapies as well as identifying vulnerable patients in the future utilizing similar services. It also does raise a question about the usability of genetic data and protection of privacy for people's genetic information but I thought the study was very well done and presented more support for the argument that these UBA1 mutations can be responsible for kind of unchecked autoimmune dis- disease in the setting of these hematologic and rheumatologic um, conditions.
0: When I first became an attending about five years ago, I was under the impression that most patients in the hospital that I was consulted on would end up getting a definitive diagnosis one way or another. And I guess I would say that most of them do, but a uh, discouraging number of them are we don't quite know what's going on let's try a bunch of stuff oh there's something on their skin let's consult derm let's do a bunch of labs etc and when this vexus syndrome and syndromes like it are discovered it's really nice because probably some of the patients who didn't really have something that we could identify have this or some other syndrome that's going to be discovered by intelligent future researchers and sometimes my colleagues in various other specialties draw a bunch of labs. So I recently had a patient in the PICU who sort of had one of these we don't know what's going on syndromes. And I looked up the labs and there were a whole bunch of interleukins that were drawn. And I thought, <laughs> what's going on with all these interleukins what is how is this useful? I have to teach myself. And not only myself, I have to teach the listeners of Dermosphere. <laughs> so I want to talk specifically about interleukin-2. So this is out of a journal called Clinical Immunology. There's just one author, Jan Damoiseau. So thanks, Dr. Damoiseau, from the Netherlands. And the article is called The IL-2-IL-2 IL-2 Receptor Pathway in Health and Disease, The Role of the Soluble IL-2 Receptor. This is mostly basic science stuff, and it's a super dense article, so I did my best to distill it. But Jan, if I screwed anything up, I apologize. So IL-2, interleukin-2, was originally discovered as a growth factor for normal T lymphocytes. Michelle, (laughs) when you were studying, like in medical school, did you learn the mnemonic hot T-bone steak?
1: I didn't, but I love it.
0: So it's supposed to give you an idea of what IL-1, 2, 3, and 4 do. So hot IL-1 causes fever. T, the IL-2 is a T cell growth factor. Bone, IL-3 is involved in bone remodeling. And the steak, you're supposed to just take the E out of steak because IL-4 is about IgE, I guess. Um, Also, IL-2 is a growth factor for NK cells in addition to these T lymphocytes. And it was more recently discovered to also activate regulatory T cells or what are called Tregs. And as we know, Tregs regs turn the immune system down. They're kind of a negative regulator. And thus, IL-2 has a, quote, paradoxical role in immunity. It supports inflammation and autoimmunity due to its effect on most T-cells, but supports anti-inflammation and self-tolerance due to its effects on Tregs. regs So this is one of those articles that makes you marvel at the elegant, elegant intricacy of the human body. Mutations mm-hmm. in the IL-2. IL-2RA gene exist in some humans, and they impede the responsiv- responsivity of the Treg cell. And patients who have these mutations have an increased risk of multiple sclerosis and type 1 diabetes. IL-2 receptors come in two general types. The high affinity type, which shows up on Tregs, and the intermediate affinity type, which shows up on most other cells that are responsive to IL-2. So if there's not much IL-2 hanging around, the high-affinity receptors soak it all up. And remember, those are on the Tregs, so that favors immune tolerance into anti-inflammation. Conversely, if there's a lot of IL-2, there's enough to spill over into those other cell types, and those become activated as well, which favors more of an inflammatory response. There is a part of the IL-2 receptor called the alpha chain, and that's what makes the receptor have high affinity. And it can fall off, can be shed, (laughs) and doing so turns the high affinity receptor into an intermediate receptor, and the alpha chain floats off into the blood where our lab tests can discover it as the, quote, soluble IL-2 receptor. So if you've ever seen soluble IL-2 receptor or like little s IL-2 R show up in a patient's lab findings, it's this alpha chain of the IL-2 receptor that has floated away from the Treg cells. And this floating away process might be just part of the body's self-regulatory process, but research suggests that these alpha chains retain a low affinity for IL-2. And thus this soluble IL-2 receptor, these alpha chains, may play some kind of physiologic role. Though the specifics are controversial and they likely depend on the specifics of the situation and the cells involved. Again, isn't the human body a wonder? And this is just like one little tiny molecule within the human body. (laughs) It's amazing. So all of these alpha receptors, if they're floating around, they may just act as a sink for IL-2, right? Kind of like a tannercept as a decoy receptor, and thus reduce inflammation by soaking up a bunch of IL-2. However, it turns out that these can combine with IL-2, and then that complex can translocate into immune cells, with the results depending on the cells that thus become activated. Like I mentioned, you can measure this soluble IL-2 receptor if you want, It seems to mostly serve as a marker for inflammation, though there are some disease-specific activations, or applications, I should say. It is markedly elevated in HLH, and as of 2004, high levels of the soluble IL-2 receptor are one of nine diagnostic criteria for HLH. Michelle, would you like to refresh our memory about what HLH is? And by we, I mean I can do it.
1: Are we talking about hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis?
0: We are, yeah.
1: Like... I like to remember it. Hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Sorry, it's terrible.
0: No, that's great. It seems to be the result of a hyperactivated immune system resulting in a pro-inflammatory cytokine storm and multi-organ failure. It can basically be primary, meaning you have it because there's something about you that makes it happen, not some other disease. There are particular genes associated with these primary HLH types, specifically the genes PRF, UNC-13D, and STX-11. But it can be secondary to malignancies, to infections like EBV, and to rheumatologic disorders. And I'm sure we've both seen patients who have HLH and their ferritin is like Mm -hmm. through the roof, and they're otherwise like sick people with multi-organ failure, and probably their IL-2 receptor is really high as well. T-cells also play a big role in granulomatous inflammation, and thus high soluble IL-2 receptor levels can suggest these diagnoses, especially sarcoidosis, and can be followed to monitor disease activity. I suspect mostly our rheumatologic colleagues are doing this, but I suppose we could as well. This phenomenon seems to be less true in other autoimmune or autoinflammatory diseases, but soluble IL-2 receptor levels can sometimes be a useful biomarker of therapeutic response or lack thereof. In malignancies, you would think that high levels would be good, suggesting immune activation against the tumor, but in fact, high SIL2 receptor levels are associated with worse prognosis, perhaps because many of these tumors themselves express a lot of IL-2, especially hepatocellular carcinoma and hematologic malignancies, and as you might guess, especially T-cell leukemia lymphoma. Finally, il Anti-IL2 monoclonal antibodies have been developed, and their names are daclizumab and basiliximab, and they have been used to treat multiple sclerosis and also for renal transplantation. Daclizumab, however, was withdrawn from the market due to adverse effects. So there's your IL-2 info. A lot of interesting information about IL-2, and I suspect that as we learn more about these interleukins, their lab values become increasingly useful.
1: Well, and I think it was great to put this together in the episode with Vexis syndrome because there are some overlapping things between HLH and... Um... Patients who have Vexus, they can both present with cytopenias and fevers. Um, They can both have cutaneous eruptions. The um, abdominal organ kind of predilection for involvement with HLH versus the vasculitic and pulmonary focus for Vexus can help kind of distinguish those autoinflammatory sort of rapidly degenerating cytopenic type of presentations. But I think that, you know, the more we understand these immune dysregulation syndromes that present hopefully the better we'll be able to help these patients and intervene before they have a sad outcome.
0: Well, I was happy to learn more. I Maybe next time we'll talk about one of the other interleukins that was checked in my patient. <laughs> there also, were a lot of you,
1: them. Didn't interleukin used to be one of your nicknames?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I got all kinds of nicknames.
1: I thought so. I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we did that. So um, another inflammatory disease that's fortunately starting to get some attention and therapeutics directed toward it is hidradenitis suppurativa. And I'm going to go over an article out of the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology discussing the use of botulinum toxin type B for hydrogenitis suppurativa, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled pilot study by Oystein Grimstad and Karl Schwartling, uh, that are out of, as you might have guessed, these people are from Norway, not the previous authors. My apologies for that. So these authors wanted to look at the potential for Botox B injections to be helpful in the treatment of The uh Botox B was FDA approved in 1989 uh, as myoblock for the treatment of cervical dystonia, torticollis, and scylaria. And it might be preferential for treatment of large areas that are near-important muscle groups because it has only a weak effect on alpha motor neurons and muscles with a ratio of 1 to 50 to 1 to 100 in favor of Botox A. But it also has an almost equal pseudomotor effect compared to Botox A. So it has a good effect on sweat glands, but not as profound of an effect on muscles which means that you might be able to use it in areas near large muscle groups and in higher doses without having to worry about weakness.
0: Wait so a second. This... So why do we use Botox, botulinum toxin A, for hyperhidrosis? Why don't we use this stuff?
1: That's a good question. Um, marketing? No. Uh, <laughs> I think that there's there's an indication for Botox A for hyperhidrosis, an FDA indication. I couldn't find an FDA indication for Botox B for hyperhidrosis. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Um, but I think that it's a nice thing to kind of look into and think about. And the units and equivalences are also different. So the frustrating thing about Botox unit equivalence is it feels like it should be able to be strictly mathematical and precise. But the there are ranges reported in most literature. And I think that that's Probably related to differences in biological effect that are individualistic, but roughly 100 units of Botox is roughly equivalent to 250 units of dysport, with reported ranges in the literature of one to two versus one to four for Botox to dysport units. For myoblock or for Botox B, it's 100 units is like 5,000 5, units, so 100 units to 5,000 or 40 to 50 to 1, if you were looking at Myoblock to Botox. The costs are a little bit different. Um, I think, Luke, you found some costs for NeuroBlock, which is another Botox B that was about like 569 for 10,000 units. I found 665 for 5,000 units. So you're a better bargain shopper than I am. Um, I think that your pricing on Botox is correct, about 660 per 100 units. The unit equivalence is um, something to consider when you're Calculating the cost of treatments, and also when you're focusing on preventing motor syndromes. But I will I'll get to that. So in this study, they took 20 patients that had HS um, stage one through three. This study did have uh, overrepresentation of patients with milder disease, but I think that was somewhat intentional. The um, therapeutic applications that we have available to us for HS uniformly work better if we use them earlier. The reason for that is that HS, unlike many of our diseases, causes structural change, permanent structural change, especially in later stages. And whenever we have permanent structural change, there will always be some attendant inflammation, drainage, symptomatology, and disfigurement because there's an aberrant structure there, unless it is surgically corrected. So the kind of selection of earlier stage disease, I think, was intelligent. um, So I don't think that's a flaw of the study. It does kind of limit generalizability to more advanced stages of disease. These patients were consecutively included for treatment, and then they were randomized to have the first round of injections be either placebo or Botox B. Then they were um, measured and interviewed at three months to see how they were doing. They were assessed by multiple instruments that were both self-administered as well as physician-reviewed. And then all patients received the active substance in the second treatment and then follow-up at six months, so three months after the second treatment where everybody got Botox B. They looked at quality of life using the DLQI, Dermatology Life Quality Index. Secondary outcomes were visual analog scales for pain in the worst boil and HS-related impairment of general health, as well as changes in physician-reported disease activity. They also assessed the number of total lesions and reported adverse effects of treatment. The DLQI improved in patients in the treatment group from a median of 17 at baseline to 8 at 3 months. The DLQI is one of our measurement instruments that looks at the impact of a dermatologic condition on quality of life, and lower scores indicate lower impairment of quality of life. So you want your patient's DLQI scores to get lower on treatment. The placebo group, over that period of time, their DLQI changed from 13.5 to 11, which was, you know, probably a placebo effect, which we've discussed previously on the podcast. There's also some potential effect therapeutically just for injecting anything into the vicinity of a HS boil. Um, Another study we've gone over in the past has looked at the effect of ILK versus saline injections and actually demonstrated improvement with both. So there may be some therapeutic effect through epidermal wounding and possibly through flushing of substances out of the sinus tracts or out through the the glands of the skin just by injecting fluid into the area. The patient's own ratings of symptoms um, demonstrated a reduction of severity as well as the number of lesions on therapy. 55% of the patients in this study reported some degree of hyperhidrosis, and the authors suggest the possibility of comorbidity between HS and hyperhidrosis, which as a person who treats a lot of patients with hyperhidrosis, I have an interest in this um, disease. I think it's actually one of the most important conditions we take care of because of the level of morbidity and impact on quality of life that it has, especially for young patients. It really interferes with their ability to enjoy the fullness of their of their youth, you know. Um, so I think that it's a, a very important thing. And, and practicing in Texas, I do think that hyperhidrosis certainly worsens the disease for some patients. The authors saliently point out that the patho- pathophysiology of HS is incompletely understood. So we used to sort of just straightforwardly attribute this to occlusion of the hair follicle, which is part of the manifestation of HS but may not be the instigating mechanism. So we've kind of always blamed follicular occlusion as an instigating event for this particular condition, and it is part of the follicular occlusion triad. I think that follicular occlusion and dysregulation of follicular epithelium is definitely part of the pathogenesis of this condition. But as the authors also point out, you have um, an increase in something called antimicrobial peptides from the sweat glands in HS. Antimicrobial peptides are understandably a a part of our innate immune system's ability to try to defend us against bacterial infection, but antimicrobial peptides trigger inflammation and may promote or facilitate HS. deployment or development. So it'd be interesting to find out in the future if perhaps patients who are prone to, to developing HS have an over-response in the elaboration of these antimicrobial peptides, and it would be interesting to determine if these might even be pathogenic. That might also potentially point to a reason why Botox therapy in either type A or type B isoforms might be beneficial, because the African gland responds to andrenergic substances, And it would be interesting to see if the levels of antimicrobial peptides change following Botox treatment. So the pathophysiology of this condition continues to be investigated, but we do believe that it is a dysregulation of both the innate and adaptive immune systems that um, leads to this severe presentation and chronic pathogenesis. Their population, as does the general population, demonstrates a female predominance of this condition. The majority of their patients were current or former smokers, and their uh, BMIs were above average uh, patients had an average BMI of around 33. The patients enrolled in the treatment arm had more severe disease at baseline, uh, which becomes important later in the discussion. They had relatively um, similar lesion counts, but a little bit worse disease in the treatment arm. which. You know, I always, I know that it was placebo controlled. So sometimes I think the the study gods are like, this person's, you know, got more severe disease. So I like to think that there's like happy study fairies that put the patients in the arm they need to be in because it makes me feel better about it. So <laughs> there are seven forms of uh, Botox. There's seven isoforms, Botox A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Only Botox A and B are commercially available. Botox blocks the release of acetylcholine and a number of other neurotransmitters from from the presynaptic vesicles. It has a strong efficacy and safety profile and a long history of use in multiple dermatologic conditions. um, As uh, Botox B has a weaker effect on the alpha motor neurons, the authors wanted to investigate this as a potential therapeutic option for these patients. The Botox B was diluted to 50 units per milliliter, which is from 5,000 units per milliliter. So that's a significant dilution of this substance. They used normal saline as a placebo. So those injections would have been somewhat similar to the previous study that we looked at that did the saline injections as the placebo for uh, the the triamcinolone injections that were being done in the treatment arm of that study. They injected the Botox B similar to how you would do it for hyperhidrosis in a grid 1 to 1.5 centimeters between each injection with 0.05 to 0.1 milliliters of the solution injected into each location. And the maximum uh, treatment was 1,300 units per session. The total treatment area, varied depending on Location. So the total dose per treatment area was variable depending on what part of the body was being treated. They limited uh, up armpits to 150 units of the Botox B, which sort of equivalates to three units of Botox A, which didn't seem like very much. Um, 200 units for the groin and 600 units for the perianal and perigenital region. And the total dose allowed per treatment was 4,000 units of Botox B, which would be 80 units of Botox A. The patients were pre treated with anesthetic. And they prevented or they excluded HS treatments that might confound things such as antibiotics, local corticosteroid injections, adalimumab, isotretinoin, azelaic acid, and other topical products during the study. One thing that was very interesting to me when I sort of dived into the data, um, they they looked at things both graphically as well as in a table format. And the graph, you can clearly see significant improvement in the treatment group from the beginning of the study to the first time point, which was month three, and then continued improvement. But the kind of slope of the curve decreases a little bit. In the placebo group, you see that kind of placebo drift that you saw. Oh, that'd be a funny name for placebo drift. It's like Tokyo drift, but more scientific. So the placebo drift, um, sometimes people will have that placebo effect and you'll see a small improvement in the placebo arm. That honestly is just because people care about their condition and they're giving them something to treat it, I think. Um, So placebo effect can be a very real thing. What was interesting to me was that the patient measured outcomes improved more for the Botox treatment group, the one that had Botox first and Botox second, significantly more between the first treatment, so between baseline and the first treatment. So they went from at their baseline in the Botox treatment group, a DLQI of 17 to 16 to a DLQI of 8 to 9.9 after the first treatment. After the second treatment, the DLQI for the Botox treatment group, so they had Botox the first time, they get Botox the second time. After Botox the second time, the DLQI actually kind of trended back towards their previous baseline values. So it went from 17 down to 8 after the first treatment and then back up to 14. In the placebo group, they had that placebo drift, which wasn't a whole lot. They went from 13 and a half to 11 with just the saline that had been injected. But then they had the treatment and it dropped almost proportionate to the original drop for the Botox treatment group that had Botox twice. They went from 11 to six and a half. And that made me think about the fact that I've seen this happen in my patients. There's this weird thing humans do where they get comfortable with whatever normal is for them right now. And if you change that, they're like really impressed with it. Um, It's kind of you see this with your kids too, right? The first time that they saw fireworks, they lost their minds. But after the third day at Disney World, they're like, yeah, fireworks, whatever. Humans get accustomed to things. And I think that this is something that affects our efficacy measures because people are like, oh, I'm so much better after their first treatment because they've had this big change from untreated active disease to better control. And then I think we reset a little bit our expectations And the improvement measures that are self-directed might be different. And I think this is important to point out because the total number of lesions continued to decrease over the course of the study in both groups, even though the DLQI went back up, which is indicative of worsening of disease after the first treatment. So I thought that that might be a kind of human characteristic that I've personally seen in my patients where they kind of get used to being better and then smaller things perturb them. I think all of us have seen this in Accutane patients. Uh, People who we treat, they come in for acne. um, We get the acne under like a lot better control. And then they'll come back in three months with like, I have two pimples and they're really upset about it, but they used to have 25 nodular lesions on their face. We get accustomed to what normal is for us now, and then we measure things based off of our current frame of reference, which is a total human thing. And I'm not faulting patients for this, but I think this is something that we need to be aware of when we're looking at clinical studies. Because and I think our-
0: in Steve Feldman's book, this is referred to as the hedonic treadmill.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think that this is a human characteristic. It's not a flaw in the study. It's not indicative that the study didn't work. The lesion counts continued to improve. I think it's a characteristic of humanity writ large that we need to acknowledge both in studies and also as physicians, because um, sometimes reminding people of where they came from in their treatments is helpful. I find this as a cosmetic dermatologist also, when we're treating patients for, you know, their frown lines or whatever, people get used to the new them. And then when those little frown lines start to come back, even if they're very imperceptible, patients are more sensitive to those lines showing back up. And then you can, you know, show them their, their reference picture of this is baseline. But, you know, I think that it's important to kind of think along those lines. So I thought they did a very nice job of showing that Botox B could be therapeutic for, Hydrodinitis superativa. The Botox could be helpful both by potentially changing the secretion of just sweat and its properties to help grow microorganisms, cause frictional irritation. It might also be helpful in decreasing potentially the elaboration of these antimicrobial peptides, which are pro-inflammatory, and other neurotransmitters are also decreased, which may be pathological in certain patients with hydronitis operativa, neuropathy and neurogenic infuma- inflammation caused by glutamate, substance P, calcitonin gene-related peptide. Those can all be impacted by Botox. So Botox may have multiple different therapeutic applications and reasons why it might be beneficial for patients with HS. I think it's nice to be aware of this pattern. I think also the thoughtful queries of the different pathways that might be utilized for improvement in the treatment of this condition may lead to further research and therapeutic options. So I thought it was well done.
0: Yeah. And just a reminder, this was not Botox that was used. This was botulinum toxin B. They specifically used a brand called NeuroBlock, which is why I looked up the price for that. Hypothetically, it looks way cheaper. I found one suggestion that this was about $600 for 500 units of Botox equivalent, making it about 20% the cost of Botox. Um, I think dermatologists aren't familiar with this stuff. And so maybe that's why we fall back to the old botulinum toxin A, but probably that would work for this as well, I would guess. And while you were talking, I started thinking to myself, back in episode 104, we discussed this therapeutic trial for secukinumab and hydratinitis separativa, which was... Did show some improvement, but it wasn't that great. And you were like, "Whoa, whoa, we're turning on the fire hose after the house is burned down. Structures are created, and so on and so forth," which is true. But I started wondering if do people get the same amount better with Botox versus Sekukenumab, which costs thirty five hundred dollars a month. And even if you buy brand name Botox for the most cost, it's going to be way less expensive than that. So I was trying to search through the DLQI response for that trial we discussed, but they have like hit it in the appendix. And basically what they're trying to find is percentage of patients who achieved the DLQI response of five points or more. And it was 50% roughly versus 35% on placebo, which again is something, but not super impressive. And it's hard to compare that directly because these guys reported like mean DLQIs, but still it seems like maybe kind of roughly equivalent. So I wonder if we should be, like, leaning more on botulinum toxin.
1: Well, you know, I think that the authors, as, as we discussed, sort of did something smart here in that they are treating less severe disease. So they included patients with HS stage 1, which is isolated abscesses, um, and stage 2, which starts to have sinus tract formation. They included one stage 3 patient. Um, the stage 3 patient was in the Botox B treatment arm. So again, the the... Randomization fairies nicely put that patient that had more severe disease in the in the Botox treatment arm. um, Sorry, botulinum B treatment arm. My apologies. And the patients in the Casentix trial tend to be um, moderate to severe disease, which is going to be early stage two and above. So I think that this more points to the fact that the earlier we treat the disease, the more likely we are to have higher or better outcomes for the patient's higher improvement or more significant reduction in DLQI. I like when I get a patient referred to me for hydrogenitis, if it's an appropriate patient and they're comfortable with it, I like to start with something to sort of reset the um, genetics a little bit of the condition. So I like to, in patients that don't have a contraindication, start with isotretinoin because I think that it helps to renormalize the both skin microbiome just through its anhydrotic effect I love that it starves the propionibacterium or cutibacterium now acnes to death by cutting off its food supply. I think it somewhat does similar things to the microbiota that can become pathogenic in HS. So I like to start with Accutane if it's an appropriate patient to start with Accutane, and I like to get them as early as possible in the disease so that we can prevent the formation of some of the fistula and sinus tracts. And importantly, we start with very low dose isotretinoin. I I like to teach my patients that acne and HS are kind of like the big bullies in the high school. And if you come right at them and try to start a fight, you're going to get knocked flat on the ground. You got to sneak up on them. And then I have to have the conversation about, now don't sneak up on anybody. (laughs) We don't want to fight anyone. But uh, when you start patients with severe acne or severe HS on very high dose isotretinoin without some kind of anti-inflammatory coverage, they can flare significantly. So I like to start very gently and sort of manage and titrate based off of patient tolerance and try to avoid flares at all with HS patients because flares usually equal more structure. And the more structure you have, the more severe the disease.
0: And of course, you can do multiple things at once, botulinum toxin plus isotretinoin plus biologics and all the other things we discussed. So I applaud anybody who does work on hydrodonitis separativa because it is a miserable and underserved disease. And it's exciting to have some more stuff that could potentially work. Well, friends, thanks for sticking around with us for this lengthier than normal episode. It was lengthy just because it was so chock full of awesome stuff, I'm sure you will all agree. And extra thanks to all of the members of Team Dermosphere who help us out greatly with every episode. Thanks specifically Morgan Dykman, Guy Kuseki, Eleonora Marcacci, Michael Birdsall, Aparna Nayak, Nehadeo, Haley Walsh, Angie Wong, and Laura Delacruz. You guys are awesome. A lot of you are applying to dermatology this year, so residency directors, please look kindly on their applications. Also, you can find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has links to all of our articles that we have discussed as well as our entire archive that you can listen to it's also a good way to reach out to us you can also find some of our content in video form now on the platform ViewMedi. that will be in the show notes remember you can hang out with the university of utah people including myself on our virtual echoes every month and also in september in idaho again the links will be in the notes that is all for today friends we will see you in two weeks Thank you.